Welcome to Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair shrinks. I'm psychoanalyst and trauma therapist Betty Tang. And I'm political communication strategist Jonathan Kopp. Join us as we welcome experts in politics and psychology to consider this, the state of our nation through the state of our minds and the mind of our state. Hi, Betty. Hi, Jonathan. What's on your mind today? Space. Space is on my mind, Betty. <laughs> okay, space. <laughs> I'm clear-eyed, I'm lucid, and I'm thinking about aliens. And here's why. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because I read recently, you might have seen this, that um, a former Israeli space security chief has told the press that aliens exist, and we only don't oh, know about wow. them because humanity is space not ready. Space security chief. He says, he says uh, we have known, we've been in touch. Uh, and the Galactic Federation is out there, and Trump is going to spill the beans. That he just spilled? That's right. Exactly <laughs> right. Jonathan, do you know what this is? I'm not going to hide my interpretation. It's a conspiracy theory. Well, uh, am you I know bursting what? your buzzball? Hey, I, I, I'm, I love the conspiracy theory, whether it's the Bermuda Triangle, the Kennedy assassination, the moon landing was fake. And, Why? And the Gal- what, what did they do for you? There are some wonderful things about a conspiracy theory. One is it's it's taking the dots and connecting them, right? It's taking okay. evidence and putting it together. Two is the notion that there's a story out there that people know that would explain a lot if only mm-hmm. it were true. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and and so that gives us hope that mm. that the things that we don't understand are actually understandable. I see. So it gives meaning to what might be unknown or chaotic. It um, does. And, and, uh, but unfortunately, I think we're seeing that conspiracy theory is seeping into politics these days. And that's where it gets a little more disconcerting. Politics and families. So folks that I've been seeing have been dealing with some real troubles in family members who subscribe to conspiracy theories, not as charming as your aliens one or galactic federation, but uh, it's, it's polarized families, you know, split them apart. They can't agree on the facts because there are no facts. And this brings us to our next guest, Nancy Rosenblum. And I'm so excited to introduce her. Dr. Nancy Rosenblum is a professor emerita of ethics and politics and government at Harvard university. And among other books, she is the co-author of A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be here. Nancy, I wonder if we could just start with some basics. Can you, for our listeners, explain the difference between what I might describe as good old-fashioned conspiracy theory and the more recent phenomenon of what you call conspiracism? Yes. Uh, but before I do my definitional stuff, let me just remind everybody that some conspiracy theories are true. And the way that people talk about conspiracy theory and conspiracism today and so on is as if they're by definition fantastic concoction. So I want to put that on the table first. R- right. So if someone's following you, you're, you might be paranoid, but you might have basis to be paranoid. Right. And, and we know that there are conspiracies. Right. By, by conspiracies mm-hmm. by government and conspiracies by corporations and so on. Okay, so old-fashioned conspiracy theory, and it's still with us, it's not past, says that things are not as they seem, 
and um, we can reveal the nefarious plot behind events. And we do this by following all the dots and seeing that the dots uh, create a pattern. The example I like to use of this is the Declaration of Independence, because everybody knows it. It begins with, Mm -hmm. um, you know, all men are created equal. It's self-evident truth. But what wasn't self-evident was that the British were trying to enslave the colonies. And so the Declaration of Independence has a long list of grievances. Here are all the grievances. Here are all the things they're doing. And they're all tending the same way. There's a pattern. And because they can show this pattern, right, they can convince the colonists that there should be a war of independence. And so that's a conspiracy theory. It it works. And if you read about the conspiracy theories of 9-11 or of the Kennedy assassination, they're like this. They're full of evidence, scientific evidence. They mimic research. If you go to a website, my favorite is Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And it's all about the temperature of jet fuels and the speed of airplanes. And right, the right. So yeah, and the name they're, itself. They're, right. So they're, they're, they're researchers. They're like social scientists or scientists and so on. Um, but conspiracy theories are theories in a second sense that's important, which is that they're political theories. Because to identify the danger of some sort of plot or action, you have to know what's being threatened. You know, what, what's the injustice being done? What's the law that's being broken? What needs saving or what needs creating? And so the point of the Declaration of Independence was to say this shouldn't be a war that would just bring us a redress of grievances, right? That this has to be a war of independence. And so all of these things have to show so, such a tight pattern that um, there can only one, be one outcome, and that is a war of independence. So that's a classic conspiracy theory. It's an explanation like any other explanation. Now, should I go on to conspiracism? Yes, please. please. Yeah, well, please. So cons- conspiracism, that's the word we use, um, decouples conspiracy and theory. That's all. It, it's no longer providing an explanation. It dispenses with all evidence and argument, even in court, as we've seen with these last electoral challenges. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it simply makes a bare assertion, one word hoax, right, or one word, rigged. And what validates this conspiracy charge is not evidence or argument, uh, but repetition and affirmation. And that's why the title of the book is A Lot of People Are Saying. And Trump used to say this all the time. A lot of people are saying that George Soros is secretly funding the migrants who are crossing the border. Yes, of course. Right. So, so that's the basic difference. That if, if this is conspiracy without the theory, it's sheer assertion. And we, well, one of the things we have to figure out is why, why people do it that way, and why people assent to it. I have a question, Nancy. When you're talking about conspiracy theory um, in the classic sense, you're you're talking about something that in connecting the dots is a meaning making thing which is a very human impulse to make meaning and with the declaration of independence as an example it's a protest it's a justification to to take action um and conspiracism these bare assertions seem to not only decouple the conspiracy with the theory is it a protest is it is it arguing against something or is it trying to prove something like so so in that regard does it operate in the same way that's a great question um i think that uh, you're right the classic conspiracy theory 
um, is a call to action, exactly that. In fact, it's a, it's a dramatic call to action. It says that the moment to act is now. And if we don't act now, all will be lost. For the most part, the kind of conspiracism that we've seen coming from the Oval Office and for, from uh, followers of Trump and for, from, uh, in some ways, um, the bulk of the Republican Party, does the same thing. That is, it's claiming that some injustice is being done to them, like there is some grievance. Um, but it's not quite a call to action. <laughs> and you, you, uh, mm-hmm. that's something mm-hmm. I haven't that's really thought through, but you're, you're, you're quite right to say that. It's not clear what should be done. Now, in the electoral context, I mean, we've seen the apogee of this conspiracism with the 2020 election and with COVID. In the election context, there was something to be done. That is, you could hire lawyers to take cases to court mm-hmm. and you could try to convince Republicans in the state legislatures to undo, uh, either not to count the votes or to decertify votes and so on and so forth. But for the most part, for the most part, the conspiracy charges that have been made don't call on followers or others to take any action. What, what does happen, um, and it's less dramatic than a, a call to revolution like uh, the Declaration. What does happen is that you have a president with um, a conspiracist mindset and a compromised mm-hmm. sense of reality with the capacity to impose his sense of reality on the nation institutionally. And that's been the main focus of my mind. My so it is, it is a call to action, but it's an action that only he takes. But Nancy, here's here's where it gets confusing for me. Yeah. And I mean, one of so many ways with this this uh, absurd framework is that it's it strikes me that conspiracy or conspiracism um, would typically emanate from the powerless against the powerful. Right. And And so how on earth does the most powerful person in the world, arguably the president of the United States, continue to maintain an outsider perspective and posture railing against the system that is fighting against him. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would first of all quarrel with the, your initial statement. That is very often conspiracy claims or conspiracy theories come from the government itself, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. big lie that says mm-hmm. that uh, the Jews were responsible yes, for the uh, German loss in the war. In fact, so very often it comes from that. But, but you're right that the typical you know, the sort of common notion of the conspiracy theory is by people who are powerless, who are, who are outside, who are looking in and who see um, uh, some sort of elite or powerful agents opposed to their interests in doing them in. And um, your question is how, how it is that, that Trump seems to embody that for people who might have grievances against an alien. And I think that, mm-hmm. that, first of all, when you have a conspiracist mindset, you always see the opposition as an enemy and the mm-hmm. worst possible. And so he's always aggrieved. He's aggrieved, he's aggrieved mm-hmm. all, all the time, and he represents himself always as a victim. Uh, you'll remember that even after he won the 2016 election, he went on and on and on about how the election was rigged and he had really won the popular vote. I mean, so, so it's showing you a mindset of uh, believing that enemies are constantly after him. And many people follow him in this. That is, people who may have true grievances um, or may simply be of the disposition. And this is typically American. I mean, it's a very American thing to see um, elites, right, 
who are opposed to you. So it, I think that there's a general generalization you can make about all conspiracies, which is the circumstances under which they really arise and become powerful and influential in society is when there's been some social change and usually when a, there's been a status loss. But in America mm-hmm. and in democracy, there's a sort of constant substrate of this because there's such a deep-rooted anti-governmentalism and anti-elitism. If conspiracy can be found, you know, everywhere, it's a, it, it, there are conspiracy theorists on the left and conspiracy theorists on the right, it seems that the conspiracism um, you, you have suggested is more of a phenomenon of the right. And so I'm wondering what you would say to those who try to apply a both sidesism, you know, to, to that assertion? I would say that they're wrong. <laughs> and, and you can, and you, can you know, sort of parse the text and, and look at the recent history and see that they're wrong. What I, I absolutely acknowledge that there are conspiracy theorists coming from the left. And if all you have to do is listen to, to the first two years of Rachel Maddow on the Russian, <laughs> on the Russian case. I mean, day in right. and day night. But she's doing this classic thing. Here are the dots. I'm following the dots. There must be a pattern. She never came exactly to the conclusion that he was a Russian agent or that he wanted to build something in Moscow, but this was classic conspiracy theory, and it went on every night for years. <laughs> uh, so the, the, left, the left does it, and sometimes when the left does it, it's correct. If you read Jane Mayer's book on dark money, right, or if you right, read right. Naomi Oreskes on the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry and the conspiracies mm. that they get. So conspiracies are true, and they do sometimes, the theories come from the left. This uh, sheer assertion, bare assertion, dispensing with evidence and argument is the phenomenon of the right. Now, uh, the question is why? And I think that the answer is, well, one, one piece of the answer is that a classic conspiracy theorist wants to bring the evidence and argument to bear because they, it's important to convince you of this fact, right? right they want right. you to think that their interpretation of events is true. I think that that's not going on with Trump. I think he, he, if you look at his avalanche of lies, these are ephemera, they're easily disproved. That doesn't bother him. Right. Because mm-hmm. he's not concerned that you think it's true. He's concerned that you assent to his view of reality, right? Right, And, right. and that's exactly what's going on with this, these uh, charges that the election was rigged. Well, that explains him. But how about exactly. the people on the right who buy into it? Exactly. And I think... I think um, this, the same thing is true there. That is, there's a congruence here. That belief is not the ba- best way to understand people who are sent to and like and retweet and spread, and in some cases even try to act on uh, these conspiracy claims that come from above. For them, objective evidence isn't necessary. In fact, it's not a matter of believing the fact of the matter, but on the other hand, it's not a matter of repeating something that they know is factually false, but that say is true anyway. What they say is that this claim has a deeper truth. The deeper truth is that these people are trying to change the nature of, of America, right? To deny that it's a Christian nation or a white nation. When uh, you remember the conspiracy claim about Pizzagate, that yes. Hillary Clinton right. was yes, running course. a sex, child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Well, there was no fact of the matter here. There was no event. There were no screams. There were no predators coming at night. There wasn't even a basement, right? 
But it was true enough. And it was true enough because Hillary Clinton was so evil. On some views, she was so satanic. In fact, you remember she'd already murdered two people. that She could be running a child sex trafficking ring. Um, the best example of this, the, the one of this that it's true enough, um, was Sarah Huckabee Sanders when she was the press secretary. There was a video, uh, yes. a video going around about uh-huh. a Muslim, a Muslim immigrant assaulting someone, and it turns out it was not a true video. And she was asked at this press conference, um, uh, uh, you know, what is it? This is a phony thing that you're passing around. And she said, whether it's a real video, the threat is real. Whether it's a real video, the threat is real. It's true enough. And I'll give you one more example of this because I, I think it's so important to get. There was a congressman um, who was talking about, um, I think it was George Soros, paying migrants to come over the border. And he says, I'm not saying it's true, but I'm saying that it's completely plausible. It's completely plausible, right? It's true enough. What I'm hearing, Nancy, in so many levels is there's a fear that people are are applying and and fomenting and and expressing, which doesn't uh, jive with rationality. Fear is an irrational. Um, it's a driver of irrational thought, and and it makes me think of the disorientation that you've spoken about. How conspiracism disorients us, but it it's also this aspect of you know, this group think that my group of people is threatened by another group of people. And I'm going to just make these bare assertions, which don't need evidence. And they because it's really about our fear. And, and our fear is justified by these assertions that can get repeated and repeated and repeated. And I just wanted to ask, like, if Trump is an embodiment of a presidential conspiracist, now that he's voted out of office. Is this going to be weakened or is the, has it taken hold like a, a MRSA superbug? Are we still sort of stuck with this virally affecting us, you know, like uh, like the pandemic, you know? You've, you've said so much here and asked so much. Let me let me try to take it apart. Yeah, I'm let sorry. Me aside <laughs> for the moment, what when Trump leaves, right? Will, will he go and what happens when, when he goes? And just talking about your initial statements, they, they really are interesting. I you began by saying that this is fear and that it's irra- irrational fear operating. And I think that there are probably some cases where it's fear, but I see the, this ascent to the conspiracist charges more as um, performative aggression. I think it's much more aggression than uh, fear. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But the other half of what you said, I think is absolutely correct and important. And that is that, What's happening when you assent to these conspiracy charges, that the election was rigged or that the, the COVID is it's a hoax, is that you're, it's not you personally and alone that's assenting. It's a, it's a signal of your identification with a collective group, with a collective we. It's um, mm-hmm. tribal in that way. I think you're exactly right. And um, what you're doing is creating and avowing this group identity by assenting and, and spreading these conspiracist claims. And in fact, it's viewed by the people who do it as a form of political participation. And the interesting question for mm-hmm. us is, is it a form of participation? Is it actually any kind of collective agency at all? Or is it some sort of uncoordinated and unorganized and in a sense, unpurposive? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I get the notion of wanting to belong, the tribal, the going along, but... 
then it gets to the point where individual citizens are buying QAnon shirts and signs and and parading around. Well, that's signaling. Uh, you know, as if it's the their team. team. I'm on the QAnon team. Right, right? but it's but <laughs> it's it's taken to such a uh, there there are people profiting from you know from this. There are people willingly playing in, and it almost seems as if. They're they're thumbing their noses at those who might know better, you know, and saying, disprove it, buddy. Right. Like, like, here I am. Come get me because you can't. Right. Right. So I think that the uh, one thing I wanted to say almost as an aside here is that part of what's going on is not just Trump and followers and uh, the Republican officials. And that's an interesting case. Why do they do what they do? Is that we now have a universe of conspiracy entrepreneurs. That is people who are mm-hmm. out there on YouTube and the internet who make money off this. I mean, I've written a piece on Alex Jones, who's gotten oh. very, very rich yes. selling his vitamins yeah. and his, you know, uh, mm-hmm. erectile dysfunction <laughs> things and so on and so. So um, there are people out there making money on it and sucking other people in. And to be an Alex Jones follower is like being a Trump follower. That is, it, it doesn't even have to be aimed at Trump, right? That there's an industry out there doing it. Um, I think the QAnon is a very good case for questioning this political participation and tribal identity stuff, because unlike most of the other conspiracies that get, uh, uh, as I say, liked and retweeted and become part of the political atmosphere, QAnon, the QAnon people are out there in public, right? They go out. Mm. They don't stay. Mm-hmm. They don't stay electronic. And they got elected to Congress. Well, no, right. mm-hmm. they, they go out and they uh, see themselves as a group. They have these slogans where we go one, we go all, and they have their mm-hmm. paraphernalia that identifies them. And they are in, interested in intimidating people. They're not just demonstrating themselves; they're, they're intimidating. And um, so I've done a lot of talking about QAnon because people have looked at this and suggested, I mean, maybe this isn't just a sort of political group. Maybe these, this is a cult, right? If they're yes. chanting mm-hmm. so on and so forth, or is it a new religion? Or so that that makes me think that how we categorize QAnon is a difficult matter, and it's it's something in flux. But I dissent from the view that sees them as a sort of religious cult. But although it does have cultish qualities, it is apocalyptic. Yes. It does, it, it, that is, it thinks that there's a storm at which point everybody's going to be arrested and John F. Kennedy Jr. is going to come back from the dead and, and the Satanists will all be killed and so on and so forth. And Trump is their leader. So it has a, it has certain cult-like, cult-like qualities, um, including some scary ones like it's apocalypticism. But, um, and others describe it in a similar way as a sort of new religion, right? New religion. And I think not. I think that uh, we've seen it, it sort of morphing away from some of this stuff and more into politics, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the question for me is, is this going to turn into a movement like uh, the Tea Party movement that was right. sort of grassroots, right, that did start uh, electing people and organizing, especially at a local level, and now we see these cues people uh, in Congress. And again, I don't think so. That is, um, what gives you, what gives you optimism? <laughs> well, <laughs> please well, share. First of all, there's, there's reason to think that the cues who run for office, like 
other Republicans, and maybe we'll get into that story, um, are, are, you know, playing to their constituency. They're playing to their base. And who knows mm-hmm. what they really think. I mean, it's too bizarre. Although they may. They, they, they may. Um, in fact, it may work in reverse. They're elected because they are convincing. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but the other thing is they have no politics. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. that. Right, right. The Tea Party movement grew in two ways. It was both grassroots and funded massively from above by big mm-hmm. conservatives. And they did it because they had an agenda of uh, small government, of deficit, against deficits, of small taxes. I mean, they had an agenda that corresponded with the most conservative agenda and they followed it. I mean, that, this is what they did. It, right, right, it was into, political from, it was political from its origin, the exactly, very name Tea Party. Exactly. Right. Uh, exactly right. Right. So, so it, it, it was a bona fide and remains something of a bona fide movement. Whereas QAnon doesn't appear to have a politics. It's morphed. It's, it's wanted to get more political. So it's admitted all these anti, anti-vax people because they seem to be organized, but I, and I've been criticized a lot for not, um, for, I guess, diminishing their significance. But uh, I, I'm skeptical that, that they're going to be important in politics. Well, I guess the question is, are they going to, you know, you have suggested at times and, and, you know, we'll see where it goes, but that conspiracism is going to somehow retreat to the fringes uh, from whence it came when Trump leaves office. And now I wonder, is the genie out of the bottle? Like, is, right. you know, like, where where are we now? And that, yeah, this goes back to my question of is is this going to fade with Trump leaving office or or is it stuck? Is it stuck as a as a super bug, a political super bug? Right. There's no way of minimizing the fact that there will be a change. That is the fact that the president with a compromised sense of reality and the capacity to and we haven't even talked about what he's done, the capacity to delegitimate foundational institutions will be gone. And mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, there's nothing like that. This right. is the damage that has been done has been done in large part, not because of his followers, um, but because of the uh, unusual uh, authority and power that the man mm-hmm. had. And because of the submissiveness of the Republican Party. And at some point, maybe we can talk about that. So in that sense, everything will change now. The question is then, what's the scenario? Will he remain a government in exile in Mar-a-Lago running again? If so, then conspiracism will continue to be very central to electoral politics and to public life. Uh, If not, there are still negative scenarios. So I'm I'm not uh, uh, fatuous in this regard. That is, the Republican base will continue to like this conspiracist stuff. And if they can't... um, link Trump to it, uh, they can see him as a martyr and they will urge other officials and the next presidential candidate or other candidates to, to follow mm-hmm. it. Um, I also think that there are lots of lower level appointments now in the agencies and in government who will be very difficult to remove, who've created in the sense of their own deep state <laughs> mm-hmm. to do this stuff. But the main point in America and abroad is that the utility of this conspiracism has been mm-hmm. so what keeps what what keeps uh, a conspiracist on the left from succeeding well we don't know that anything would con- would stop a conspiracist on the left but we just haven't ha- had one uh, uh, if you even look at the democratic primary candidates there were none of them who 
really fit that bill. I guess so. In other words, it's, comes- it's it's circumstantial that it's been from the right. It's not because of there's some characteristic of the right that makes them more susceptible to to conspiracy. That, that's a great question. I don't think it's just circumstantial. I was being mm-hmm. um, too sim- simple minded. I think that there are two things. One is. Um, that the Democratic Party is a coalition party. And when you have a coalition party like that, you can't rely on a single kind of fantastical, uh, made up universe in which you own reality to do it. I mean, there are too many realities within the Democratic Party uh, to do that. And the other thing is that the Democratic Party, and I sh- perhaps I should have said this before, is um, a, a party that wants to govern. And in partly it's because of, of its constituencies who want things, right? And mm-hmm. so the Democratic Party has to try as best it can under difficult circumstances to govern, to do things. And um, I think that conspiracism is a substitute for governing. And that's mm-hmm. true, certainly true of Trump, who even in the, in the circumstances of pandemic, or especially in the circumstances of pandemic, threw up his hands, absolved responsibility, didn't want to govern. And one of the reasons why now I get to my Republicans, mm-hmm. <laughs> my Republicans who, who go along, I think they, that they go along for a lot of different reasons. Some are simply supine. Some thought that they could control him and manage him and use him to their purposes. Um, some maybe have confidence in him and want his coattails for, for um electoral purposes. But I think what's been missing from the conversation about Trump and conspiracism has to do with this governing, this governing Mm -hmm. piece, that the Republicans don't want to govern. That is, they want as little government as possible, right? Yes, right. Right. There's a congruence between the craziness of Trump's conspiracism, which disrupts the agencies and, you know, takes people who have capacity out of, out of, play. Um, and what's been true of the Republicans for 20 or more years. So they want to cut taxes, but that's about all they want. Um, and they want deregulation. They want the chaos is not exactly what they want. They would like to do it in a more planned way, but they don't want a government, active government. And so there is this very deep alliance uh, and going along between these forces. Nancy, what what you were saying about Trump and QAnon and even the Republicans right now, it seems that there's there's this bald faced power. So it's almost like power in and governance has been decoupled under politics. That politics has become just a sheer grab for power, which you know a pluralistic group like the Democrats is not going to. Uh, be interested in and and able to capture, um, and and I know you're also have written on pluralism, and and yet we are becoming far far more by demographics pluralistic in terms of population and in our separate identities. Can we wait this out, or has the impact of Trump, his conspiracism, and and the delegitimation? Um, d- wrought some damage because I want to go back to how what you think Trump has done to us, or or what he, he and his followers have done right. in the delegitimation. But that piece that our institutions have been in democracy. Your your title is the assault on democracy. So how how has this been assaulted? Right. So I go from your initial point about power to delegitimation and. Um, 
I'll stick with one one thing that uh, has been delegitimated by the Republicans, and that is uh, the notion of a loyal political opposition. And let me explain that that political parties are the foundational institution of representative democracy. They're how you uh, have conflict and elections amongst parties is how you have a peaceful uh, change of power. Mm-hmm. And that only happens because you assume that the, the opposition is a legitimate opposition. You may disagree with it in all sorts of ways, but you don't think that it has no claim to power if it wins elections. At every election, the losers claim, oh, he cheated, he lied, he had too much money, he had too little money, blah, 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 blah. But they don't mm-hmm. challenge the legitimacy of the person who won office. Right. Um, what we have with the Republican Party, and it has been true before Trump, but Trump brought it out, he, he's illuminated a lot that was going on before, is that the Republicans are a minority party and that they want to hold power and they will do it by any means, right, at any cost, beginning mm-hmm. with voter suppression and now with the attempt to actually erase votes that have been cast. It's the only way that they can um, continue this way. And I want to say what delegitimation is when you talk about the delegitimation of parties, because I think the word is now everywhere and it's being used promiscuously. Delegitimation is not mistrust. You don't mistrust an institution that's been delegitimized and you don't doubt its operation and you don't cast doubt on it. Delegitimation has a very specific meaning. It means that this institution, or for example, the Democratic Party, no longer has any meaning, any value, or any authority. Hmm. And what delegitimation means because of these things is that it has no claim on your consent or compliance. To delegitimize something is an invitation to disobey or um, exercise rogue violence or whatever. Now, that seldom happens. Justification. Right. And it's not only a justification of it, it's a, it's a license. It's exactly what it's about. It's when, and when Trump says, if, if Biden is inaugurated, right, we can't call him a president. We, we have to call him a, a person in the office of the presidency. Right? <laughs> And, and so he has no claim to authority and he has no claim to obedience. And we see around the fringes now the rogue violence that follows from that and the not so rogue, rogue violation of de- democracy like voter suppression and voter erasure. But that's what delegitimation is. It's not just and when people say, well, we now mistrust uh, the CDC. How can we gain the trust of the CDC? It's not about mistrust. We know that mistrust, the trust can be regained. You mistrust something if it doesn't operate to your advantage or if it's corrupt in some way. Um, And those things can over time be corrected. But delegitimation is really quite a very different and more troubling, deeper phenomenon. And I'll just end by saying that social scientists and historians know a lot about how democratic institutions got legitimated, right? What gave them authority mm-hmm. over time? And we are seeing in front of our eyes the delegitimation of these institutions, what's sometimes called democratic backsliding. We have no idea how to re-legitimate them. That was so our next ask, question. <laughs> well, well so, so, but I think there are two questions. And Betty, maybe this is, speaks to you, maybe it doesn't, that 
one of the questions is how do we combat this conspiracism? Mm-hmm. But another and harder question is how do we re-legitimate the institutions that have al- already been degraded? Right, right, right. It's like how do we stop the virus and how do we make the body healthy again? Exactly. Well, particularly when, right. when we've, right. we've democratically chosen to put people in place who from the inside are corroding the very notion of government. Right. They want power, but they don't want to govern. Right. Pa- the power to not govern. <laughs> it's inherently unraveling. Um, and, and, you know, something that you had, had said, Nancy, about about all of this and how disorienting it is, and, and there's so much we could say about the outrageousness and the drama that draws so much attention, which you said we need to be startled into thought. And I think that that's like a really great and interesting and powerful phrase because this stuff cuts down thinking. You know, you you blank out. You 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 hear things like Pizzagate and Hillary Clinton running a pedophile ring, or you know, my my mind just freezes. But but you're also saying we need to be startled. So can you say more about what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, I can speak for myself. So this project began after the inauguration when mm-hmm. um, 2016. Right, the 2016 inauguration and. Um, Trump had claimed that he had the largest inaugural crowd in history, certainly larger than Barack Obama's. Mm-hmm. And um, the photographs of the National Park Service came back and they showed a modest crowd that wasn't the biggest crowd in, in history. And his immediate response was the photos were doctored. Now, that was startled. I mean, I was completely startled. Mm-hmm. What, what does it mean? It is so disorienting. It's... Um, it's different than a lie, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. a lie plus a charge of conspiracy that these silly photographers in the National Park Service were doing something something really malign. Um, And I began thinking then about the significance of this conspiracy claim and why it was so disorienting. First of all, it was an assault on common sense, right? Right. And if you have ongoing and absurdity, assaulting common sense, you get turned upside down. Absolutely, which we describes the last four years. Right. But then if you can actually think about it, which this this project made me do, is that what's really behind this, two things behind this disorientation that we're talking about. One is the deeper, deeper issue is what does it mean to know something? What does it mean to know that the photographs were doctored or not doctored, or that the election was rigged or not rigged? And what we have here is a divide that's much more treacherous and much deeper than just a partisan divide, although it tends to follow the partisan divide. It is this epistemic divide about what it means to know something. And unless you can bridge that divide, which we have not been able to do, you can't uh, argue, you can't persuade, you can't negotiate you can't you can't even disagree <laughs> because there's no common basis to do it so it's it's sort of like the um the old expression you you're you're entitled to your opinion but you're not entitled to your own facts exactly that moynihan's famous phrase yes right 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 and, you know fa- fa- facts facts are disputable whether they're accurate or not is disputed and the significance of facts is, is disputed but without some 
basis of even arguing about facts, right? You, you right. can't have any kind of government. You can't have any kind of policy. And this leads to the bigger thing that's happened. Um, you know, I spoke of the delegitimation of foundational democratic institutions, and one is political parties and the notion of opposition. And the other, and, and we've all seen this for four plus years now, is the delegitimation of knowledge producing institutions. Um, at, from the FBI at the outset uh, to the Environmental Protection Agency to now we've seen the CDC. And um, this, I think, is probably more reparable than the attack on political opposition. But it's going to be a long time to repair because these agencies have been hijacked. They've been diverted from their purposes. They've been circumvented. Uh, loyalists have been put in place so that they're, you know, they're, they've been altered in what they do. And I think that the reestablishment of these agencies that are the knowledge producing agencies for government um, is a first order of business. And I think that we see Biden going about that already as best he can, because you cannot uh, govern without uh, information from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the census. Right, the right, right. right. It's the technocrats, the bureaucrats. It's it's the it's the stuff of government um, that you need. You need the data. You need the facts. I guess my question is: Do you think that uh, whether it's Joe Biden or if it were any other president is is restoring our faith in democracy and in government, getting past conspiracy and getting back to faith in evidence? Is that something that a an elected president? is able to accomplish or is that more of a cultural social, you know what I mean? Is it can a political actor? Yeah, is this a grassroots thing or is it a, a top down thing or a both? Well, I think it is both. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a deeply social thing, but more, more immediately and practically it's a political question. And I, I would divide my answer to you into two, two categories. I think that COVID the COVID pandemic, um, which was so riddled with conspiracy and with partisanship and with um, uh, ungovernability, you know, no attempts mm -hmm. at, at governing it, made it so that reality bites. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, 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 well I think, said. I think reality bites there. And I think that there is then a broad social, not just political entree for uh, Biden and an administration to go back to resurrecting knowledge-producing institutions and using this evidence. Uh, so I think that that path is probably a traversable path. Uh, I, I'm quite hopeful about that. Um, on the other, on the other side, the political side, that is the side that the the, the Democratic Party is an enemy and not a loyal opposition and can can be. Uh, kept from office by any means. And if it happens to get into office, you obstruct it by any means so that it can do nothing. I don't see that disappearing. I will be very surprised. It may be in the short run, they reach a COVID agreement because even Republicans, you know, uh, voters are dying and need help. But I, I will be very surprised if I think it will be a long time to repair a party system and a representative democracy can't work without a party system. 
I could keep geeking out on this stuff for, for so long. And I keep wondering, is it that it's music to my ears because I happen to be a Democratic partisan who agrees? <laughs> or is there objective truth? And, you know, like like you start questioning your own. Am I just buying my own accusation of their absurdity? Or, or, or can we believe in objective right and wrong and left and right? And Well, something bad has happened. Objectively true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, it's serious. It's serious. This assault. I mean, the assault on democracy is happening on so many levels. But this is this is really like an internal or a, a bad virus. It's it's intense. It's really intense. Um, I, I appreciated your final question, which we didn't get to talk about, about pluralism. You were mentioning pluralism. And I think that that's part of the answer to all of this. I, I just think that um, when we talk about the destruction of knowledge producing institutions and facts and so on and so forth, I don't want to go too far on the other side. I think democracy requires skepticism about mm-hmm. these things. Of course. I mean, experts are wrong. Experts are biased. Experts mm-hmm. are corrupt. Mm-hmm. Right? There are lots of reasons to mistrust them, not to delegitimate them altogether, but to mistrust Well, that's why we have them. watchdogs and ombudsmen and independent exactly. inspectors general and everything else. And above all, it's why, and this is getting back to Betty's point, above all, what we have is a pluralism of institutions. If mm-hmm. you don't have plural sources of knowledge, right, then right. you can never be certain that the knowledge that you have is not, leave aside true, useful for our purposes now. Or not. Right, and right, right. So pluralism, I think, is key to all of this, a pluralism of political parties and a pluralism of knowledge producing institutions and what certainly what conspiracists and, and, and in fact, what the Republican Party in recent years has done is to build itself a sort of edifice of certainty and and not and the opposite of pluralism, of mm-hmm. monism or totalism or whatever you want to call it. Well, there's a lot of work to <laughs> there's a lot of work to do then and the ability to think is is a worthy weapon and and you've given us that, Nancy, you know, seriously. So, thanks for joining us. It's been fun. Great fun. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Mind of State. If you like this episode, you'll find plenty more on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mind of State Pod. Our website is mindofstate.com. Mind of State is produced by Alita Cooper and Jenny Woodward. Special thanks to our co-founder, Thomas Singer. I'm Betty Tang. And I'm Jonathan Kopp. Join us next time on Mind of State.